MacCast, Sunday, October 2nd, 2022. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's Tom for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to be back here with you for another week of Apple news, hints, tips, informations, and all that goings-ons. Informations, I did that again. <laughs> well, all the goings-on in our little Apple and Mac community. How are you doing? I hope you're having a great day, evening, weekend, whatever it might be. I just got back from vacation, so I'm feeling pretty rested and relaxed. It was a nice little time away, a little bit of a getaway, and I had a good time. But looking here over all of the things that have been happening over the past week or so and we got a few things to talk about we're going to get into iphone sales and basically what's happening with iphone sales there's a little bit of confusion i think a little back a back and forth a lot of speculation no one really knows what's going on apple is going to have its quarterly results call here at the end of the month so we'll have a little bit better picture more accurate picture but right now we you know we've got speculation and rumor and stuff to talk about so we'll get into that uh Apple's next event. What's happening with that? There's a little information regarding that this week. We're going to get into some iOS 16 and iPhone stuff, issues and things that have cropped up since the release. Also, we've got betas with new fixes and updates to get into. We're going to talk a little bit about Apple Music and some news related there, and then get into some follow-up on Apple Watch Ultra and iPod or AirPods Pro, excuse me, Two, uh, there were some teardowns, and we have some new information about those products that we'll share with you. And that'll round out the news for this week. Then we're going to get into some feedback. We have a great little tip on cable management, something we had talked about a while back. We already got some good tips on that, but I got a new one this week from a listener that I wanted to share with you. We're going to get into Apple quality control and a discussion of that, discussion about Apple's customer service. So uh, that should be fun. And then I have a little mini review for you uh, of AirPods Pro 2 because I got mine while I was away and I've had a chance to play around with them a little bit and I have some opinions. So I will share that with you and that will round out this episode of the MacCast. So it should be a good one. I say we jump right in, starting off with iPhones and Apple's market share. Uh, they're doing very well, at least according to a new report from Digitimes, for high-end headsets or handsets, which they're defining as $500 and more. They're estimating that Apple's iPhones had about 50% market share in the off-season. And now that we're in peak iPhone season, that's when the new ones go on sale, they're estimating around 60% market share. And they're thinking that this may be the new normal for Apple. Apple will gain market share uh, in large part because of the new iPhone 14 and specifically iPhone 14 Pros becoming very, very popular. A lot of people jumping on the iPhone bandwagon with these new models. And as you might know, so far we've kind of had mixed reports on what's going on with Apple's iPhone 14 supply chain, which models are selling well, which aren't. Uh, some of the reports have been saying that Apple is cutting orders specifically or especially for the non-pro models. DigiTimes, as a matter of fact, notes that in their checks, Apple suppliers have not received orders to slow production, 
but have been asked to adjust which components they're actually producing for which devices. So this actually kind of lines up with what we're seeing in terms of sale levels and in which phones are popular. It's proving that the Pro models are a little more popular. iPhone 14 Pro Max is the most popular. So Apple looking at their supplies and going, hey, let's shift and make more iPhone 14 Pro, specifically 14 Pro Maxes, and we'll kind of pull back on the iPhone 14s for now. So overall, they're still looking to produce the same kind of volume of iPhones in total for new iPhones in the second half of this year, but just shifting the push to have more on the pro side of things, at least going into the holidays. And that kind of lines up with some other reports. Last week, we had a report from Ming-Chi Kuo, who had said that Apple had asked suppliers to ramp up iPhone 14 Pro production by about 10%. And this week, there were stories from Bloomberg that Apple had plans to increase iPhone 14 production by about 6 million units to keep up with holiday demand. That was iPhone 14 production. But they were saying that apparently now that has changed based on the lower expectations and and lower demand for those entry-level models so that they'd be pulling back on that. Ming-Chi Kuo actually questioned some of the rumors that were going around too, that you know Apple was ever planning an increase going into the holidays and reiterated the fact that this adjustment that we're seeing is more about the focus of demand for higher-end iPhone 14 Pro models and also demand for the reduced-price iPhone 13s. So it looks like the entry-level model that most people are going for is the lower-priced iPhone 13, which is a great phone. And as we know, a lot of the features and enhancements that are in the iPhone 14, and again, I think this might be working against Apple, uh, aren't that more advanced than what you get in the iPhone 13, right? They didn't change things up too much. So especially keeping that older processor, you know, why why go for the high, the, the entry-level 14 when you can get the 13 at a better price and it has most of the features that most people are probably going to want. So I don't know if that factored into Apple's strategy. I think they were hoping to sell more iPhone 14s, but we'll have to wait and see. The iPhone 14 Plus, I think, goes on sale this week. Pre-orders are just starting or deliveries are starting. So we'll have to see how that progresses. Again, my personal opinion is that long-term, the entry-level models will become more popular probably later in the year as more incentives get put out there by the carriers and also more people move to the point where they're wanting to upgrade their phones. So I think this will all balance out. I think we've kind of seen this in the past, and that's likely what's going on. Backing up all of this stuff is also display analyst Ross Young did some checks on the display supply chain, and that shows that the iPhone 14 Max panel orders are about 18% higher than those for iPhone 13 Max panels were last year. So that indicates iPhone 14 Pro Max is actually probably outselling at this point uh, the iPhone 13 Max for the same period last year. And he also says that iPhone 14 panel orders are are 38% lower than orders were for the iPhone 13 panels a year ago. So definitely trending with what we're seeing from other reports and other analysts going, going on out there. Overall, though, based on the panel shipment, it seems like Apple is on track to deliver iPhone 14 models in the second half of this year, more of them than they did for iPhone 13 models. And this is covering all the models, both 
entry level and uh, pro pro models and looking this year to come in somewhere around 80 to 90 million units in the second half of the year, which seems right on with many of the analyst predictions for how iPhone sales were going to go. So it seems like everything is on track. And like I said, once we have Apple's quarterly result call at the end of the month here, we will actually know if that trend all works out, but it's looking like it will at this point. So again, no need to, no need for any kind of panic in terms of iPhone sales. Things are going to likely to plan. They're just making some adjustments in terms of where consumer demand is at this point. There, that's what it's looking like uh, currently. Because of this buying trend, Ming-Chi Kuo is also predicting that Apple might choose to further differentiate the feature set between the iPhone 15 Pro and the iPhone 15 Pro Max model in next year basically cramming more features into the max to make that more attractive to consumers to try to push them to the higher end higher priced and frankly for apple more profitable device there have been rumors from bloomberg that apple might even swap out the max branding for the new ultra branding to kind of line up with the new apple uh, apple watch ultra and for me uh, you know I'm not a fan of the big phones, so I'm really hoping this is not the case. I completely understand if it does happen because that's the best for Apple. But, you know, as a non-Max phone user, um, there's already enough differentiation in line for me. Like, I already feel like the Max gets a little more love, the the Pro Max gets a little more love than the just the Pro model. And if Apple were to take that even further... Yeah, that would be a little bit of a bummer. I don't want to lose even more features and be forced just to get those features to have to go to a larger size device. But that's just my opinion. Be curious to know what uh, you out there think about that. Also, just an FYI, there were also reports this week that the iPhone 14 Max uh, that there were references rather to an iPhone 14 Max model in images and file names on the Apple website. You may remember back when we were talking about rumors leading up to the iPhone 14 announcements that uh, most outlets were calling it the iPhone 14, iPhone 14 Max, and then the Pro and the Pro Max. Apple obviously went with iPhone 14 Plus branding. We know that now after the event, but that may or may indicate, may or may not indicate that there was like a last minute switch in the branding right before launch. So to me, that actually switch in branding made a lot of sense because it really does differentiate what I would call the consumer level or entry level models of iPhone from the pro level models. I, I like the fact that they distinguished that branding and didn't go with the, the max naming because I think that would have been a little bit more confusing. So that's kind of the latest on what we know about iPhone 14 sales. Now, as you probably know, many of us believe that we are due to get one more Mac iPad event out of Apple this year. That may be in question, depending upon which analyst you believe. But Mark Gurman over at Bloomberg said in a recent newsletter Basically, don't count your apples before they're ripe, meaning that German thinks the new products might not have enough oomph to kind of justify another keynote. He says that Apple could just roll out the updates with a few press releases instead. 
yeah, that wouldn't be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm, I, I really enjoy, as you probably know, and I think you do as well, we enjoy Apple's events. We like hearing about all the new stuff. They're doing these great videos now where they're really, really well produced, in my opinion, and generally pretty efficient. I don't I don't find them as much as anymore, as much as I did the live keynotes that they have a lot of extra fluff. We don't get a lot of those developer kind of demo things that always kind of slowed the whole thing down and just made it drag. So, you know, I'd like these new events. I would love to see them do one for the new uh, Mac and iPad products, but that may not happen. And the thinking behind that, according to German, is that basically Apple did a similar thing a few years ago where they announced the products via PR, via press releases and their website. And what they were able to do is kind of drag that out over almost a whole week. So they would kind of release a new product or throw out new information every day. And I think the idea there was that got them kind of a good press cycle when they were releasing a number of things. And we are still expecting a number of new products to come out this year. An updated M2 Mac Mini, and then maybe even a Mac Mini with an M2 Pro processor, so kind of a Pro higher-end version of the Mac Mini, which would be really, really killer. An M2 Pro and M2 Max 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pros, so the updates to the 14- and 16-inch MacBook Pro models. Uh, Also, M2 iPad Pros in both the 11-inch and the 12.9-inch form factors. And then an updated Apple TV with a new A14. And so, I can see where German would be coming from on this because basically most of these models are going to be the existing designs, a lot of the same feature set, just with the updated processors. And maybe that's not enough to kind of generate excitement for a keynote, but I think Apple could still pull it off, right? (laughs) Now, you may be wondering about the Mac Pro M series update. Uh, We're not expecting to see that until 2023 at this point. And who knows, maybe we won't even see it for longer. What I find interesting about that is not too many people are mentioning that if that does happen and we don't see an M-series Mac Pro this year, that means that Apple will have missed their full lineup uh, Apple Silicon conversion deadline that they announced when they announced the processors in 2020. And actually, technically, if you go back to their press release, it happened in June 2020, and they said the complete transition will happen in about two years. So I guess they gave themselves a little bit of leeway with that about But that was from June of 2020, so we're already past really two years by several months. And if they don't make it before the end of this year, which many people were expecting them, you know, when they said that, that that meant by the end of 2022, yeah, well, it'll be into 2023. I don't think it's a big deal, but just something interesting of note, right? Apple often kind of makes predictions for when things are going to get done and and they don't always end up happening that way and often for very good reason i would imagine if apple's not ready to put out a mac pro that's because they have big plans that just aren't coming to fruition in the timeline that they were hoping for and i personally always feel it would be better to delay a product if it's not you know perfect and uh you know apple has a history of not always doing that so take their time i think that's good they did throw out the mac studio right so i think that kind of fills that pro gap for a little while but ultimately i know there's a lot of you out there a lot of pro mac users who are really looking forward to seeing what apple silicon looks like in a 
Mac Pro, right? We already have the ultra processor and we're expecting the extreme processor, you know, basically a doubling of the ultra. And that thing is going to be a monster. Yeah, there's just no way, no, no way of getting around that. That thing is going to be screaming and amazing. And I think we're all looking forward to seeing that. But seems like it'll be maybe sometime next year. A few other things that Apple does have in the works that are more likely expected for 2023. Uh, Apple Music Classical. Remember when they bought that uh, classical streaming service company and they were going to kind of roll that into Apple Music, maybe as a separate app. Uh, as a matter of fact, Apple, I think, said they'd have a dedicated classical music app coming in 2022. Yeah, the deadline's running short on that one, and it's not clear if they're actually going to make that deadline or not. But we have seen kind of some hints and references this week for Apple Music Classical coming. Uh, Apple had announced Apple Pay later at Worldwide Developer Conference, and that was supposed to come out before the end of the year. Uh, Mark Gurman thinks that could be delayed until 2023 uh, due to what he calls, quote, fairly significant technical and engineering challenges. So that may be a little bit delayed. We also had heard rumors of a potential new HomePod. It's not really clear if it would be an updated mini or a full-sized HomePod like the original or something in between. I'm guessing something in between. And it was supposed to have the new Apple Watch S8 processor in there. That's probably coming sometime in 2023. And at this point, too, most predictions for Apple's AR VR headset launch are for 2023 as well. We don't know how far into 2023 at this point, but uh, hopefully in the in the first half, you know, we've been talking about that product for a long time, and I'd love to see what Apple has to give us in that department. One other little bit of news this week from the ARVR headset realm, there was a report from the ELEC that Apple has asked Samsung to produce an even higher resolution display for the headset 3,500 pixels per inch, and that would be up from what we had heard the original ask was of about 2,800 pixels per inch. So higher resolution displays going to be really, really nice in that uh, AR VR headset. And then last kind of product updates we're expecting sometime in 2023, probably in the first half, would be an updated 14-inch iPad Pro, so a new size for the iPad Pro, and an updated 15-inch MacBook Air, so that larger MacBook Air that we've been kind of talking about as well. All of those things are probably things to come sometime in 2023. So a little bit of news came out this week that uh, people are reporting issues with battery life after iOS 16 has come out and also with the new iPhones, the iPhone 14s and iPhone 14 Pros. I wanted to talk about that a little bit because it gets a little bit confusing. We kind of have mixed reports. Uh, I personally have not had any issues with my iPhone 14 Pro and the new operating system. I haven't heard too much from you in the community either. So if you have been noticing battery issues, I'd be curious to hear from you. But I wanted to talk about that uh, a little bit because typically with a new iOS launch and with the launch of new phones, we do start to see an uptick in reported issues about battery drains. If you go back and look historically, you'll see this happen and it kind of cycles through. Sometimes it's more extreme than other times. And usually those reports last 
for about a week or two weeks after the launch of the product or launch the operating system, launch the new product. And we're kind of getting on that cycle right now. We're getting to those two weeks and we're still seeing some spotty reports. And this can feel sometimes like Apple didn't QA the operating system properly or something went wrong with the OS, but it can often also um, be a normal effect of the update and likely will calm down after a few days or so. And the reason for that is there is a lot of background things that happen after an update or when you get a new device and you kind of transfer all your stuff over. Specifically with iOS 16, there's a new photo processing that goes on in the background, happens on device, and it's for the new duplicates feature. So it's scanning to identify duplicates in your photo library. So if you have a large photo library, that can be running for a bit of time. Now, it's my understanding this should be only happening when your device is not in use and connected to power. So I don't know if there's anything related to that. I haven't really monitored it. Um, but yeah, that could be going on. I actually used the new duplicates feature and it was pretty cool. It found 1,800 duplicates, duplicate photos in my library and about 15 duplicate videos. And that was out of 20,600 photos. Some of them were in there three, four times. And what was cool about the new feature is it has an option to either merge just the exact duplicates. So same file size, same format and all that stuff. Or it can merge uh, the images and keep the highest resolution, best format one. And it also says it will merge all of the metadata. So it merges all it merges all that together, keeps the highest res one, and then puts everything else into the recycle bin. Now, I felt safe in doing this because, as you know, I'm a fanatical backup person, and so I have archived backups of all my photos. So if it's messed up, I'll let you know. I'm trying it out. I'm going to let it do its thing. Hopefully, I don't end up regretting that, but it seemed to work just fine, and I still have all of the... Uh, the original images are the single images that I merged. So I kind of went through and spot checked and everything looks pretty good so far. If you're not seeing the duplicates album, so the way this works is after it's done its scan, there should be a new duplicates album that shows up in your photo library. And then you can review uh, the duplicates there and, and manage it from there. This is in, again, iOS. I haven't looked at it on the Mac yet, um, but it seemed to work pretty well. But you know, that's a new process that's kind of running in the background and that could have some impact on battery, uh, I would imagine. As a similar, in a similar vein, a lot of times when you get a new device or do an update, there's spotlight indexing going on in the background. There's your automatic app updates because developers are pushing out new versions of their apps to support new features in the operating system, right? And so all this stuff goes on for the first couple of weeks. And I think what we get a lot of times is this information bias where people don't realize all this extra stuff is happening and processing on, on their devices in the background. And that has an impact on battery life. So battery life goes down for a little bit, but it should eventually balance out and uh, kind of take care of itself. If you are continuing to have battery life issues, you know, a lot of times just rebooting the phone or hard resetting the phone or doing some of those things can help. Um, but yeah, we'll just kind of keep an eye on it and, and see what's going on. Just another thing related to battery, Apple did note in a support article that if you enable the keyboard haptics, and this is a new feature that I love, well, haptics have been around forever, but 
as I noted on a recent episode of the MacCast, iOS 16 now gives you the ability to uh, separate the keyboard sound on iOS from the keyboard haptics. So you can have both of them turned on, you can have one turned on and the other one turned off. But uh, Apple's support article did note that keyboard haptics can have an impact on battery life. And that makes sense because, you know, every time you type a key, you they're having to, you know, trigger the uh, taptic engine to kind of make that feedback happen. So they don't note how much of an impact it has on battery life. I would imagine it would be relatively small. And for me, totally worth it. So I turned off my sound because that bugs me, the, you know, the little click, clickety clackety sound, but I left the haptics on because I like the tactile feedback. So you can adjust this. If you go into settings, sound and haptics, and then keyboard feedback, you'll see the toggles for each of those options, sound or haptics, and you can mix and match to your heart's desire, which is a pretty cool new feature in uh, iOS 16. iPad OS 16.13 beta is out and some pretty good news for iPad Pro owners because they adjusted one of the key new features that's coming in iOS 16.1 that had been previously limited to just M1 iPad Pros. And that is Stage Manager. So if you want to test that out, the public and developer betas of that are out now. I personally will be waiting for the release, which should be coming sometime in October. Um, so in the next few weeks or so. So I can hold on for that. But sounds like Stage Manager will now work on the 11-inch iPad Pro first generation and later and the 12.9-inch iPad Pro third generation and later. So those are the, I think, 2018 iPad Pro 11 models, 11 inch models, and 2020 12.9 inch iPad Pro models, if I'm remembering those dates correctly. And, uh, you know, previously that feature was going to be available only for non M series iPads. And that created quite a kerfuffle, as you probably remember. And so Apple's engineers kind of got on the problem. They figured out how to make it work uh, for those previous models. Uh, one of the ways they made it work was they limited the support for stage manager on external displays to the i to the m series ipads so you'll be able to run it on device on an older ipad pro but if you want to have stage manager on device and on your extended display you are going to need still need an m1 series ipad for that but that's that's pretty cool that they were able to do that and it and it also appears that the same models will also be getting the display zoom feature or option as well. So Apple adding a couple new features that were originally exclusive to the M1 iPad Pro back to older iPads. And so I thought that was pretty cool to see happen this week. And I look forward uh, to checking out iOS 16 when it does release. And then one other little bit of information on the latest iOS 16.1 beta. This was uncovered by 9to5Mac. they noticed that it looks like Apple's going to include a satellite connection demo to allow users of iPhone 14 models to try out the emergency satellite experience without actually having to trigger an emergency response. I think they're trying to get ahead of the curve on that one because I have a feeling without a demo mode, a lot of people would have tried to trigger that feature and, uh, overwhelmed the emergency response system and, and the satellite system and all that sort of stuff. So I think that's a good call where you kind of 
check out the feature, see what the experience is going to be like, but not really trigger trigger emergency trigger an emergency response. Excuse me. So, thought that was a pretty good call. But that's kind of some of the latest uh, things that are going on with iOS sixteen point one betas. Apple and the NFL announced that Apple Music is going to take over sponsorship of the Super Bowl halftime show starting this year or this upcoming Super Bowl, February 2023, from Pepsi. Looks like the contract is a multi-year deal between Apple and the NFL. And Apple Music is also going to offer exclusive deals and sneak peeks of artists, I would assume, leading up to the show in February. We know from previous rumors over the years that Apple has been attempting unsuccessfully so far to do deals with the NFL. They were trying to get Thursday night football. Rumor now is they're trying to get NFL ticket on Apple TV+. Plus. I can only imagine that tightening their relationship with the NFL, especially by giving them a big sponsorship deal and a lot of money, could only help future negotiations between the NFL and Apple. I don't, you know, I don't see it as like, I don't think they're going to be totally swayed, you know, the NFL by Apple doing a big sponsorship deal, but you know, it has to tighten up that relationship and kind of help things. So maybe, maybe we'll be getting an NFL Sunday ticket announcement on Apple TV plus sometime soon. We'll have to wait and see. Almost immediately after the announcement, we started seeing news and reports on which acts might be featured. One of the first ones I saw was over at Variety they had a report from, they say, sources, quote-unquote, close to the situation, who said that Taylor Swift was set to headline the show. Apple and Taylor Swift have had a little bit, of, or Apple Music and Taylor Swift, rather, have had a little bit of a rocky uh, relationship, should we say. You may remember a while back, um, Apple Music was not going to to pay artists for streams of their uh, free trials. So when you were on a free trial for Apple Music, they weren't going to pay artists for those streams. Swift made kind of a kerfuffle about that, rightfully so, and Apple changed their mind on that. They went back on it and they paid artists for people who were on the free trial, which I thought was a good call. Uh, Since then, they've had a pretty good relationship. She's done exclusives for Apple Music, concerts, all that sort of stuff. So it makes sense that she might be part of this halftime halftime show. Although Apple did officially announce on their website, uh, or Twitter rather, Apple Music announced and the NFL announced that uh, Rihanna would be a headliner for the halftime show coming up this year. So could be more than one artist. They've done these big spectacles where there's a number of artists, but definitely Rihanna is confirmed to be part of that, uh, that halftime show. Now that the Apple Watch Ultra and AirPods Pro 2s are out in the wild, they're in the market, they are being brutalized for our benefit. Yeah, letting us know how rugged they are and uh, letting us know what makes them tick. They're getting the teardown treatment from places like iFixit and others. Also abused for durability. Wanted to talk about that a little bit. Let's start with the Apple Watch Ultra. I would say overall, it's getting pretty rave reviews out there. If you've been uh, reading any of those, folks seem to really like the new rugged, more durable design. They like the features. Um, You know, the overall look of the thing, I think, is incredible. The feature set is really, really nice. It also, as you might imagine, does appear to be more durable than the Apple Watch Series 8, though 
we can note now not completely indestructible, especially if you smash it with a giant metal sledgehammer. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> but YouTuber came out there and like tested it. He was able to get a couple good bangs with the sledgehammer without doing any damage and then ultimately gave it a giant whack. And as you might imagine, it destroyed the thing, uh, especially the ceramic back, which I would imagine would be a little bit less durable than the front glass, which is protected by that new bezel. There is some question about how much that new bezel does protect it because the bezel goes right up to the very flat screen. And I think iFixit noted in their review that that still offers about 170 degrees of glass that is fully unprotected. So you get a sh nice sharp rock at the right angle directly on the glass. And yeah, it's likely going to crack. So you might want to consider Apple, Apple Care, you know, accidental damage protection on your new Apple Watch Ultra. Things pretty expensive, so I would definitely protect it. But overall, you know, a lot of the reviews that are doing drop tests and things like that, it does seem pretty rugged and uh, and pretty tough. The case will get scratched up a little bit, you know, so you could expect wear and tear unless you put some other kind of casing around it. But overall, looking really, really good. Battery life is looking amazing, as expected. Uh, people have been getting it out into the wild, and it is performing as you might expect. Um, it's also apparently Apple's first Apple Watch with a quote-unquote removable back. Uh, I say quote-unquote because while there are five pentalobe screws holding down the ceramic rear plate and sensors, opening it, uh, it looks like there's a waterproof gasket, and not just like a glue, but an actual gasket that gets easily damaged um, and would likely need replacement so you can maintain its uh, water resistance, which goes down to 100 meters. So if you're trying to open it, uh, be careful. I don't even know if that's the part you can get. I fix it even damaged that gasket as they were trying to do it. So it definitely wasn't easy. Um, and uh, really removing the back, as it turns out, you don't gain access to much outside of a metal plate that sits on the back. And you can disconnect, obviously, the, the back sensor array and stuff like that so it looks like those screws are there simply for the replacement of that component or at least for the most part it also should be noted that it is much harder with this apple watch to remove the display from the front without doing damage and that's because of that raised housing and the flat screen so you can't really get you know a spludger or any kind of pry tool under that very very easily and again I fix it damaged it when they were trying to do the replacement in their video. So just be aware of that. Hopefully not too many people are going to be trying to crack into their new Apple Watch Ultra, at least not immediately, you know, save that for when you actually need a repair. Um, some other things of note, the battery has a casing around it, which is a little bit different. It's also twice the capacity or about twice the capacity of the Apple Watch Series 8, which explains some of the extended battery life that you're going to get there inside the case to get to everything specifically the depth sensor iFixit had to remove 32 screws so you wouldn't expect that many little screws to be inside a device that small i mean it's larger than any other apple watch but it's still a pretty small device so very compact a lot of screws in there and then uh, folks have been testing out things like the uh the depth sensor uh apple included the depth app which is currently limited to about 40 meters. Apple says it's really for um, recreational diving, which is kind of about the depth for recreational divers. So 130 feet, 
the Apple Watch, as I noted earlier, is rated for up to 100 meters. But to do that, you're going to need a more advanced app like the Oceanic Dive app that Apple partnered with. Uh, that app is not out yet, so we haven't been able to see any tests of that. But it's definitely working down to the 40 meter depth and quite well. Uh, there were also some reports from Mac rumors that at least some Apple Watch Ultras and Series 8 models of Apple Watches are experiencing what looks like to be microphone issues. Basically, the mics become unresponsive. Um, the voice app will report errors that there's a problem with the sensors. And uh, Apple is apparently aware of the issue. It's not really clear what's going on right now or how many units are affected. There were some reports that Apple is replacing Apple Watch hardware in some cases. But assumption is that they're also probably looking into a software fix. And hopefully it can be fixed with software. And that will be released sometime soon. So if you've had that issue, I would say contact Apple Care, see what they might be able to do with you. Again, it's not clear at this point if it's actually a hardware issue in some models of Apple Watch or if it's something related to software. It could be either or. We'll have to wait to see what Apple does. And then moving to the AirPods Pro 2, iFixit did tear those down, but it actually requires physically tearing them apart. So it's very, very much advised that you don't try to open up or do anything with your AirPods Pro, especially AirPods Pro 2. I would even say your AirPods Pro, but especially with the charging case, because the charging case does have a battery in there. And if you're having to like saw and hack things open there, you don't want to nick that battery. That could be very, very dangerous. So I wouldn't do it. Let the experts at iFixit do it and just go to their website if you want to see what's inside there. But basically, they had to rip those things apart, both the uh, the earbuds and the charging case. Um, one other interesting thing that came out related to the charging case, though, is there was a CT scan done by uh, someone, and it showed that the lanyard loop, the new lanyard loop that sits on the side, is actually internally connected to the lightning connector and by, by proxy then to the logic board. And that's leading to speculation that Apple may be using the lanyard loop as an antenna, probably for the U1 ultra wideband chip and the find my support. So that's really cool. And then uh, as you may or may not know, in the charging case is now a speaker, and that speaker offers uh, charging sound. So when you connect to a charger, there's a little ding, and when you when you disconnect and all that sort of thing, um, those sounds can actually be enabled from the settings while you have your AirPods Pro 2 connected to your device and the case is open. If you go into settings, you'll see your AirPods Pro listed there and you can tap on that and then there's a toggle for enabling charging case sounds. So if the sounds bother you or if you just want a little more silence when you're dropping it on um, your wireless charging base or your MagSafe charger, which is now supported with the new AirPods Pro 2, then uh, you can toggle the sound that way. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and thank a show sponsor, and that is LinkedIn. You know, LinkedIn is the place for you to share your ideas, whether you're passionate about healthcare, sports and entertainment, finance, podcasting, Macs, or anything in between, there's a community of more than 850 million people who care about the same things as you. I don't know if you're a LinkedIn user. I definitely am. It is my professional network. It's the 
go-to place where I go to find out what's happening in the industries that I'm involved in. So that can include the Mac and technology industry. That includes uh, web development and programming, which I'm into, and also podcasting. And that's how I keep up on everything. And I find the content there very, very specific and very helpful coming from the some of the best folks in industry. And I think that's what makes LinkedIn really, really great. I can connect and network with others in my professional sphere. And it keeps out a lot of the noise, in my opinion. So when you create and share on LinkedIn, you're not just connecting with other people, you're connecting with opportunities. Whether it's a new job, a speaking engagement, contract work, or more followers, the people who see your work on LinkedIn are the ones who can generate business outcomes. LinkedIn is the place where people help one another in their professional journey, whatever that may look like. When you share what you know, the conversations you start can help others develop new skills or inspire them with new perspectives. Visit linkedin.com today to join the conversation and get the tools you need to reach your audience. That's linkedin.com. And a big thank you to LinkedIn for their support of the show. A while back on the show, the subject of cable management came up on the show. And I don't know about you, but I really hate cables. I think Steve Jobs did as well. <laughs> but cables and cable management are a thing. I try to do a good job with it, but if I'm being really, really honest, I think my cables are still more messy than I would really like. So we had kind of thrown out some different solutions and different things that people were doing to help better manage their cables and maybe make their workspace a little more clutter-free. And I know it's been a little while, but I did receive a new email this week from Brendan, who says he builds industrial process electrical cabinets for a living, which cool. <laughs> but also he said they use a product called Panduit Panduct Wire Ducting. And he mentioned that wire duct is probably something to look into if you're looking to do cable management. And for me, this looks like stuff that you would probably more likely attach to the underside of a desk or back of a desk or to a wall. And it can kind of house a little bit more bulky cables and things like that. As a matter of fact, uh, Brendan says you can even get ones large enough to fit smaller transformer bricks for your products. So if you want to kind of hide those away. And if you just do a search for wire duct on Amazon, there are tons of different products that you can find that fit different sizes and different amounts of cables, lots of different lengths. And as a matter of fact, it looks like a lot of it you can actually cut to length if you need. So you can kind of adapt it for whatever your application might be. Uh, a lot of it can be mounted to a wall or a surface with screws or foam tape. So a lot of different mounting options to kind of clean up your cable mess and clutter. And what I was impressed by is it's also surprisingly affordable. There was some of it uh, that I saw in there that you could get 183 inches of ducting, and they were in like 15 and a half inch segments uh, for about 20 bucks. So that seems like a pretty good deal to me. A lot of it's paintable. So if you need to paint it to match your wall or your environment, you want to hide it because there wasn't a lot of color options. I did notice that. It does seem to be mostly designed for cabinets and, and cabling in, say, server rooms and stuff like that. But looks like it could be easily adapted for a home application as well. And so I just thought that was a really great suggestion. It was something that I wanted to share with you because it, ha it wasn't anything that I had considered in the past. I've used other kinds of conduit, uh, more designed for like home entertainment applications. But I've often found that that version of it 
was never really big enough to fit all the cables that I needed to, to jam in there. Like when you have two displays and a bunch of hard drives and a bunch of audio equipment and stuff like that. Yeah. I've got a lot of cables coming like big rolls and chunks of cables coming out of the back of my, uh, my monitor. And I use the split tubing a lot with zip ties and that sort of thing. And it makes it a little bit cleaner, but you know, still not as, like I said, as clean as I would like. So I love these suggestions. If anybody else has like other ones that we haven't brought up or little creative solutions and things like that, that they're employing, uh, send us some tips, shoot me an email, send me an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. But Brendan, thank you for sending that one in. Cause I thought, you know, this conduit stuff, wire duct, great product. Again, just search wire duct on Amazon and you will find a ton of options. Vince wrote in this week to ask a question about Apple and quality control. And this kind of, I think, goes hand in hand with what we were talking about a little bit earlier about a lot of people, you know, updating their operating system or iOS or getting a new device and then suddenly seeing or feeling like they're having battery issues or that there's problems or that there's more bugs. And, you know, this is where... This conversation is kind of in respect to Apple's products and software. And the reason for the question coming from Vince was that he had a situation where both his new iPhone 14 Pro Max and his wife's iPhone 14 experienced a quote-unquote black screen of death, uh, basically going blank and unresponsive not long after receiving the devices. Now, luckily for Vince's iPhone Pro Max, a hard reboot just got everything going again. But he said with his wife's device, it was a little bit tougher because a hard reboot didn't work. Connecting it to power didn't work. Connecting it to a Mac, it came up and said it did not recognize the device. Uh, And then connecting it to a wireless charger and rebooting it was the thing that ultimately made it work. So it was almost like, did it, you know, go dead because it ran out of power. But once it was on the wireless charger, it claimed that it, that it still had a 98% charge. So maybe even either the charging indicator was off and it was actually at, you know, a 0% charge, but still there, you would think plugging it into power would have resolved the issue, but maybe the power connector somehow via software went dead for a moment and connecting it to the wireless charger was the thing to kind of get it going again. Who really knows? But that did get Vince wondering and feeling like, hey, things have gotten a lot buggier in the past few years. Uh, and he was wondering, you know, is it because of the pressure Apple has to get new stuff out on the market? Is that the culprit? Is the kind of rush to get new things out there, rush to get new operating system and features out there, causing a situation where quality control isn't as good as it used to be? And I get this a lot from a lot of people. Um, there actually was, you know, a couple of immediate iOS 16 updates, iOS 16.0.1 and 16.0.2 that addressed a number of bugs and issues. That really happens because of the lead time that Apple has to have to get products into manufacturing, right? They get iOS 16.0 ready to go. They have to ship that for pre-install on their devices. And then lo and behold, they find a few minor issues or bugs and things like that that need to get patched or updated. They try to roll those out before the actual release or right around the release of the products. And yeah, there's going to be uh, bugs. But in the iOS 16.02 update uh, related to kind of what Vince was experiencing, there was a fix that said uh, the display may be may appear completely black during device setup. So, you know, it goes in there 1602, 16.0.2, 
how to fix to address that. So I don't think that's what, Vince, you were experiencing, but you know, maybe somewhat related, who knows? So make sure you're on 16.0.2. I mean, run your updates. That's always a good advice. But getting back to this bugginess problem and whether we think that Apple's quality control has gone down, you know, it seems like we have this conversation almost every year, right? A lot of people always kind of question, are things more buggy? And I think it's a perception that kind of comes about with a new OS release, with the release of new products. And again, I I feel like it all falls back down onto confirmation bias, you know, where we're kind of more aware that there's a new operating system out and we're actually searching to a certain degree and looking for bugs and issues more than we might. Or we're, we have more heightened awareness when something goes a little bit wonky or a little bit wrong, right? And I also think that our memory of bugs and issues from past releases also fades a little bit. So you think in your mind you're remembering all the good things about, you know, iOS 12 or 13 or you know like oh that was a lot of cool features and I, I remember not having issues back then but you probably did or maybe did and have just long forgotten about those because you've moved on with your life and everything's running along just fine right and obviously as we get further throughout the year with uh with an os there might be bugs that you never even really hit with the original release and were patched before you even noticed them right so it feels like man ios 13 or iOS 15 was a lot more robust. It had less issues than iOS 16. And again, I think a lot of it falls back to just this timing, perception, confirmation bias. I'm not saying that there are not issues. We know with any OS update, there are going to be issues. And as a matter of fact, there's going to be more, right? Because they're cramming in more features, more new things. They're doing things to push the operating system, to push the devices forward. So yes, there's absolutely going to be bugs and issues. Really, the root of the question is, are things more buggy now than they were in the past? Do we have more quality control issues? Do we have more um, problems with glitches and stuff like that? You know, as Vince says, he remembers it. I remember the days when you never had to worry about glitches with new Apple products. And I don't think that's ever been the case, right? There's always been glitches. Products, as you know, as a lot of people say, never say never. It's easy to say there were never issues, but that's a little bit of a trigger word in my opinion, right? There's always issues. The question is, is the quantity different? Is the relationships different? Stuff like that. And I really don't think there are. Another thing that factors into this, in my opinion, is past devices and features were simpler, right? Especially with iPhone. We've gone through 14 generations now, and along the way, Apple has packed more and more features in there, more sensors, more cameras, more chips, more technology, more things that can break and go wrong and more things that need to have software. Frankly, it's amazing that we don't have more bugs, in my opinion. There's just a lot more moving parts than with the original, you know, devices and iPhones. So more things to go wrong. And so, yeah, we're going to get bugs. We're going to get things and stuff like that. I think Apple does a pretty good job of getting betas into the hands of developers and customers pretty early. You know, they've got the public betas. They do that far, far in advance. And I think they get a lot of feedback into those channels, of course, they have to prioritize what gets addressed in terms of bugs and features and things like that. And some of those actually might have to wait due to the tight deadlines. So yeah, the tight deadlines are going to factor into maybe what bugs Apple chooses to kind of let get into the market and addresses later. This is something, you know, being a software developer, 
we actually go through these all the time. You know, what are critical bugs and what are bugs where we can still launch, but they might be minor annoyances. And that's just the reality of deadlines, right? You have to get a product out at a certain point. Otherwise, you'll just never ship anything. So, you know, it's this balancing act. And sure, Apple's going to have to play that. But, you know, hopefully they pick features and, and, and bugs and issues that are going to impact the least number of users or maybe just be visual annoyances and not really affect functionality. Those are kinds of the judgment calls you actually have to make. So, you know, is it worse than it has or better than it has been in the past? I, I don't think it's really changed very much. And we've already seen situations where Apple will choose to delay very specific features that aren't quite ready for launch. And they're doing that because they would rather have a delay in that feature coming out than delivering a frustrating or buggy experience. So I think that even shows that they're really more dedicated to getting things to work uh, than intentionally rushing out any kind of feature or software to actually just make a deadline. So, I, you know, I would say overall, I don't think anything's different. But again, that's just my opinion. So I'm sure those of you in the community might have a differing opinion, and we'd love to hear that. Shoot us an email, send us an audio comment, maccast at gmail.com. Now, somewhat related, I think, to what Vince was talking about is customer service. And as I've mentioned in the past on the show so often, what happens here on the MacCast is we get little waves of topics from the community that seem related. And I've shared with you my recent experience with Apple support over the wrong address on my iPhone 14 order. If you want to hear that saga, go back and listen to the last couple episodes of the uh, of the MacCast. But you'll see in that story along the way, I was getting a lot of mixed, mixed information and different answers from people within the Apple support system. And so that creates kind of this customer experience, uh, customer service experience that's a little bit frustrating and a little bit wonky. So of course, when you have that kind of experience, that's something you want to share with people. And now I have a story and a question from Josh this week, because he says, have you heard any feedback about poor customer service with Apple lately? And again, this is a reoccurring topic that's come up over the years is, you know, Apple used to be so great at customer service and I had this bad experience and Apple's horrible at customer service experience now or at the customer service experience now. And I think... Again, it's the kind of situation where every customer experience, service experience that I've had with Apple, support experience that I've had with Apple over the years really has to be looked at like a separate entity. And I guess you got to kind of look at how many of those have been sort of bad or negative because I think you're always going to get some of those depending upon the situation versus how many are positive, right? And so just one bad customer support experience shouldn't sort of taint all of your customer support experiences or be a reflection on Apple as a whole. Um, I like a lot of the new options. I like their new updates they've done to the support website. I love chat support, which works pretty well most of the time. I have had a little flubs and foibles and, and things like that, but overall it works pretty well. I like the callback system. I like, you know, the escalation system. A lot of it for me 
has been pretty positive. But Josh, definitely this time around, didn't have such a great customer service experience. Well, at least on a certain level. So let me explain what was going on with Josh, and then we'll talk about this a little bit more. So Josh was asking this because he recently had an issue with his Apple Watch Series 7 and was having a little bit of a hard time getting it resolved and ultimately replaced. So he was experiencing issues with the cell phone feature not working very well, and also with the Bluetooth to his AirPods Pro cutting out, uh, specifically when he'd drop his arm down. And I've heard of other people having this problem where like the body blocks the Bluetooth signal and it goes wonky. Uh, Obviously that shouldn't be happening. And uh, so he had sent uh, the Apple Watch into repair for Apple via the App Store, but it came back and they said, oh, there's nothing wrong. We've had no issues. And so he continued to use it. It worked for about a day or so. And then he started to have the same troubles all over again. So of course, more phone calls back and forth with Apple, blah, 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 phone resets, watch resets, a lot of debugging, um, which again, I think this is a testament to Apple's customer support, right? They worked with him on a lot of different things to try to troubleshoot and do resolution and stuff like that. And again, I know sometimes that experience can be or seem frustrating, but hey, Apple is legitimately trying to help you resolve your issues. And, you know, for a lot of us, especially as more experienced folks, right, it is kind of frustrating to get on the phone and be like, have you tried rebooting it? Have you tried reinstalling the software? Yes, these are all the things that we as experienced users know to do probably before calling Apple. So you kind of walk through that rig and roll, but you have to understand they have to go through their process because they don't know the experience of the person who's on the other end, right? They they have to go through their system. And so just be prepared for that and, you know, have a little bit of patience. And, and I think, uh, again, you have to look at what they're doing. They're really trying to help out in any way they can. Ultimately with Josh, um, they said, hey, look, you know, we can't resolve this. We will replace your watch. Um, you are going to have to send yours in first, which again, a little bit frustrating, right? Because you're going to be without your device for a while. Uh, he said it took them about six days to present, to send the return box and label. Josh, I don't know where you are, what part of the country you're in, but you know, that can take a little bit of time depending upon where you are. Um, and then he said after receiving it or after he sent it in, they had it about a week and they still hadn't sent out the new watch. Now that is a little bit frustrating, right? They received it. Uh, maybe they're trying to review it and make sure, you know, you sent in the right thing. But that process definitely, I would think, should be a little bit faster. Um, he had to contact them again. And uh, when he did, they said, oh, hey, well, we haven't sent one out because we don't have Series 7 replacements anymore. Uh, we're going to have to send you a Series 8. So, hey, that's pretty cool. You're getting an upgrade. But he was saying, hey, it's still been another week. They haven't shipped anything out. Um So I don't know what's going on there. He also mentioned that he had several personal representatives. So when you get escalated, you get escalated up to a a personal representative very often, and they try to take care of and resolve your issue. Um, But they don't really ever offer a direct way to contact them. A lot of times what they want to do is call you back or schedule calls. You'll go back and forth on email. Josh said, hey, that doesn't really work for my situation. It's kind of frustrating and it's hard to get kind of aligned on things and stuff like that. I'd prefer to be able to just call in and talk to somebody. But yeah, Apple's process doesn't work that way. And that can be a little bit frustrating. But You know, my overall take, as you probably can tell, and you've probably heard, is that as imperfect as the system might seem at times, at least Apple is providing support. A lot of companies, you can't get a hold of a person no matter how hard you try. You can't get a hold. Try getting support from Google on anything. Yeah, good luck with that. 
you know, you have problems with your Gmail, you are out of luck. You cannot email anybody. You cannot call anybody. You cannot talk to anybody. Nothing. So, you know, a lot of companies don't even let you get to a human these days. They'll even go so far as to try to completely stop you. Like they will not post a phone number or a support email anywhere on their website. You know, at least Apple's not hiding here, you know, and that's not to say like, they should be offering the least common denominator of, of customer service. I think they go above and beyond. Well, uh, you know, well beyond that. Um, Josh, I really hope you get your replacement, but you know, for the replacement watch, this might be just a case of bad timing. It seems like to me, because it sounds like this was happening right as Apple was discontinuing the series seven and moving to the series eight. So maybe you started that, you know, they, they thought they were going to get you a series seven and lo and behold, Series 8 comes out and it's all backordered and they're having trouble getting supplies and stuff like that. So they want to send you a Series 8. Maybe they just don't have it quite in stock yet. So it's taking a little bit longer. And that's probably what's going on there. And that, again, that's not to defend Apple in any way, shape, or form, but I, I think they're doing a pretty good job. And my experiences have been pretty good. And as I mentioned, I have not been getting a lot of emails lately from anybody in the community who's been saying, yeah, I've been having a lot of bad experiences. It does happen from time to time. I'm not saying Apple's perfect. They definitely aren't. But I, you know, I think it happens more rarely than the positive customer service experiences. I, I would say, you know, over the years here on the MacCast, I've probably gotten more emails from folks praising Apple's customer service than I have from folks saying I had a bad experience. But again, it does happen. And I'm sorry, Josh, that this time around, it was a little bit frustrating for you. I do hope you get your new Apple Watch sometime soon. Maybe you have it already. And uh, again, I think Apple does overall a pretty good job. But once again, just my opinion, if you have a different one or you want to share one of your experiences, let us know, maccast at gmail.com. And then finally, as I promised at the top of the show, I do want to give you a little kind of mini review of Apple's AirPods Pro 2 because I ordered mine. Uh, I did receive them. They came while I was out on vacation. I was excited when I got back that they were ready here waiting for me. Uh, I, of course, immediately opened them up and set them up. And I have to say the setup experience is even more magical than ever before, right? Because you take them out of the box, you open you open up the case and boom, hey, you want to pair your, uh, your new AirPods Pro with your device? Sure. Click a button and you're ready to go. I mean, that is magical. <laughs> and I absolutely love that experience. Uh, overall, you know, what I can say kind of in summary is they offer some really nice enhancements over the first generation of AirPods Pro 2. Uh, noise cancellation is getting a lot of buzz in the community. I would say for me, it is definitely better. I'm not sure I feel it's like vastly better before. Um, it is definitely better. Uh, a lot of people are saying two times better, three. I know I can't really quantify it. Um, it's better. You know, they're, the background sounds are definitely filtered out a lot more than with the prior generation. Uh, nice enhancements also goes for spatial audio. I did the custom spatial audio scanning. That experience was very interesting because you do the face scan, kind of like Face ID. That works pretty well. It's pretty straightforward. But then you have to do these ear scans where you're kind of holding your phone to the side of your head, but obviously you can't look over there and you have to kind of move your ear back and forth and just trust the sounds that it makes. So it makes some sounds to figure out, is it done scanning? And you have to kind of hold it 10 to 20 inches away from your ear. It was a little bit tricky to do that, but it worked overall. I just don't know 
what it actually did because personally I can't perceive a big difference from the out of out of box spatial audio. You know, Apple says it's going to kind of scan your facial profile and your ear profile and adjust the spatial audio sounds to make it, you know, personalized for you. So I guess mine's personalized, but I don't know that I would really know the difference if I'm being 100% honest. Still, cool feature. Um, the volume control on the stems is nice. Uh, it was a little bit tricky, at least for me, to use because it feels like I, I was kind of like, I guess I was expecting as you slide up or down, it continues to raise or lower the volume. If it's supposed to work like that, I can't figure out how to make it work like that. Really, it's kind of a swipe up, one tick, swipe up, one tick, swipe up, one tick, same thing for going down, which actually kind of makes sense because I would imagine it would be a little bit too hard on that small of a surface area to actually have like a linear volume up and down. So I get why it works that way. Um, I just don't know why I was expecting it to work a little bit differently. So that put me off a little bit, but overall it works and it's nice to have volume controls on the headphones themselves. Uh, adaptive transparency mode is not active yet. That's coming soon. So I haven't been able to test that out, but I'm, I'm looking forward to that, you know, where it reduces louder sounds with the adaptive transparency. So that'll be nice. Um, I will say overall, my favorite feature by far is the sound on the case. So the little, I like the little charging sounds. I'm going to leave them. Um, I also, you know, played around with and tried to find my stuff and that works flawlessly. That is really, really cool for me. I'm not so sure how much I'll use that on a daily basis. I have not had issues with losing my charging case. Um, occasionally I misplace one of the earbuds, usually when I've fallen asleep with them in, uh, but I usually find them again and I don't have to use the find my feature too much, you know, knock on wood. That's me. But if you're the type of person who, you know, leaves the case around somewhere, you're going to love this feature because uh, it makes it super easy to just hone right in on it and find it anywhere in your house. So that's really fun. Um, overall, bottom line for this review, I would say is if you already own a set of AirPods Pro, you're probably not missing out on a lot. You don't have to, fe- you know, you know, you don't have to have a fear of missing out with AirPods Pro too. Yes, there's a lot of little nice features and enhancements here, um, but. This doesn't feel like it's a must-have upgrade for owners, again, of first-generation AirPods Pro. Now, if you're looking to get your first set of AirPods Pro or are a non-AirPods Pro user, like you have just AirPods or some other wireless earbuds, and you're looking to get into AirPods Pro, this is a great time to do it. (laughs) This is a great version of AirPods Pro to get into. Uh, They are fabulous. They sound great. Uh, they have a lot of great features and, you know, again, I really like them. I tried out, you know, as you know, the Beats Power Buds and those are nice. Uh, you can definitely save money by getting those. They have a lot of the same features that the AirPods Pro offers, but just the fit and finish and all of the features of the AirPods Pro, I think, make them, for me, the best wireless earbuds that you can get at the moment. Uh, That's my opinion, uh, and that's my little mini-review of AirPods Pro 2. But with that, that is going to do it for this episode of the MacCast. Thank you for hanging out with me. I want to take a quick moment and thank a couple of my show sponsors, Cashfly. They provide our bandwidth. You can find more information on them at cashfly.com. And all advertising on the MacCast is handled by BackBeat Media. They are at backbeatmedia.com. 
As always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM9, and you can leave a voicemail. If you need show notes, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you'll find those on the website. That's at maccast.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash maccast. You can check out the MacCast Facebook page over at facebook.com slash the maccast or find me on Instagram, just maccast on Instagram. But that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.